Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, if uh, you do not have a copy of God's Word with you, uh, let me invite you to slip up your hand. We've got extras in the back and church members walking down the aisles with extra Bibles. Mark chapter 10 is where we will be. Mark chapter 10. I want to thank you. Um, I want to thank you for praying for me uh, last week as I was at First Baptist Church of Luling, uh, sharing the word with them. Um, uh, if you are not sure why I was doing that, um, let me just sort of let you know kind of what's going on there. Uh, First Baptist Church of Luling is uh, it's a sister church across the river, about 15 minutes from here. They've been without a pastor since before COVID, so uh, they've had a difficult two years. Um, they've got a big facility. Uh, but they've got few people, and uh, they've been sort of limping along and struggling in a lot of ways, and they reached out to our church to ask if we could kind of help them think through what it would look like to revitalize or maybe be a replant to sort of start things afresh and uh, see if God could do uh, a work there under new leadership. And so, so I've been teaching on the doctrine of the church there starting last Sunday and then every Wednesday. And so I would ask for you, uh, to keep them in your prayers, because we, we don't care just about God working in St. Rose Community Church. We care about God's kingdom all over the world, and we want a faithful witness not only in St. Rose, but we want a faithful witness in Luling and all over the world. And so so if you could be keeping FBC Luling in your prayers, and if you're interested and you live over that way in, in being a part of a revitali revitalization work or a replant, um, I'd love to have you join us for Bible study on Wednesday nights over there as uh, we talk about the doctrine of the church and, and the future of the church. So thank you for praying. Thanks to Cody for faithfully preaching the next uh, section of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so we're going to turn our attention now to Mark chapter 10, and I'm going to read uh, verse 13, starting with verse 13, where Cody led us through last week, and then I'm going to read all the way through verse 31, where we will end this week. So, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And, and he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him 
and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But, But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at him and said, with man, it's impossible. I'll say that again. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, for the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. All right, let's let's pray together. (coughs) Father, we come this morning uh, thankful for the scriptures that we walk through every week together, thankful for the gospel of Mark, thankful for the way in which you've confronted us with so many things through the ministry and the teaching of Jesus. Just in the last month, just in the last four weeks, looking through the gospel of Mark, we've seen teaching on the doctrine of hell, on the doctrine of marriage and divorce, on on how you care for children in this world. And now we come to this, this story which is hard to hear, hard to understand, but impossible to believe and obey apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. And so, God, we come to you confessing our need right now in this moment for a miracle of hearing true things believing true things, and then living life as if they're true. With man, it is impossible for a sermon to do any good. But with God, all things are possible. And so, God, we we come and we ask that you would speak in power, by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The story of the world is a tale of two kingdoms. 
We see this emphasized throughout the Gospel of Mark, and we see this phrase show up multiple times in the passage I just read. The phrase, the kingdom of God. The story of the world is a tale of the kingdom of God being rebelled against by the kingdom of man. You see, the kingdom of God is the real kingdom. God's kingdom has always been, and it always will be. It's the eternal kingdom. The the kingdom of God is where God sits in his rightful place as king and ruler over everything, including our hearts. He rules, and his rule is a blessing to all those who trust him as their king. The kingdom of man, however, began when man decided that he should be king. When man decided that, that he would create his own kingdom. That man's kingdom is one we create for ourselves. It's the one where we rule our lives by our wisdom. It's the kingdom where we seek glory for ourselves. Man's kingdom is one. But the scriptures say, will one day come to an end. In the end, the story will close with only one kingdom left standing. Man's kingdom will end in death. As God's kingdom swallows it up and is the only one left standing. But see, the gospel of Mark And the story of the Bible is that Jesus came into our broken world full of people rebelling against God. And Jesus began to announce good news of the kingdom of God. Good news that God has offered you an invitation to transfer your citizenship from a kingdom that is Fading away always to a kingdom that will never fade away. The the message that Jesus began to preach all the way back in Mark chapter 1 was this. In verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Gospel meaning good news. Repent and believe in the good news about the kingdom. You don't have to live for man's kingdom anymore. You don't have to sink with the ship of man's doomed kingdom. You can repent and believe in good news of God's kingdom that will never be, under, never be destroyed. You can come under the rule, the protection, and the love of a new king who loved you so much he came to earth to pay the penalty himself for your rebellion. You see, to become a Christian, according to the Gospel of Mark, is not just to say a prayer, sign a card, or do a thing when you're a small child. To become a Christian is to transfer your citizenship from one kingdom to another. It is to pledge allegiance to a new king over your life. To, it is to live in this broken world as a representative of the new kingdom to come. God's eternal one. And God's kingdom has different priorities. It's different than the world that we live in 
now. It has different guiding principles to live by. And we saw this in Cody's message last week very clearly. Look back with me at Mark chapter 10, verse 14. As, as these children are coming to Jesus who have nothing to offer him, and Jesus says in verse 14, middle of verse 14, he says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So, so who are the people becoming members of this new kingdom of God? They're the ones who come to God like needy children. They come to God with nothing to offer him. He's the king. <laughs> he, he owns it all. They come to him confessing, I need you. You don't need me. We don't bring anything to the relationship. We don't purchase this citizenship in the kingdom. We come totally trusting and needing him to forgive us of our rebellion, save us from our sins, care for us, and wrap us up in his eternal arms. It's the needy and the trusting who come into the new kingdom. Very different dispositions than those that are praised in the kingdom of man, right? In the kingdom of man, you, you gain power in the kingdom of man by exhibiting strength, by, by putting yourself on display and showing how much you don't need other people. But in the kingdom of God, the entrance is your neediness of a God who created you, sustains you, and is the only one who can save you from yourself. And so with that teaching fresh on your mind, Mark now throws us into another very different interaction with someone else inquiring about how he can become a member of the kingdom of God. Of God, how he can transfer his citizenship, but he just asks it in a different way. Verse 17 of Mark chapter 10. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the first thing I want you to notice about this man is his eagerness. I mean, he's eager to meet Jesus. Perhaps he's heard stories of all the things we've seen Jesus do throughout the Gospel of Mark, his miracle-working power, the gathering of crowds, the teaching them, the feeding them with bread from heaven, the calming of storms, the casting out of demons. This is Jesus, and perhaps he's heard stories, and so he runs to Jesus, he kneels before Jesus, he compliments Jesus, he even honors Jesus by asking a question that he believes perhaps only Jesus knows the answer to. And this is the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in our world, where we don't use the word kingdom very much, maybe kingdom feels foreign to us, but this language of eternal life is more recognizable to us? I mean, that is the question, isn't it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? One of the astounding things about humanity and the kingdom of man is the concept of death and how uncomfortable we are with it. Death is very much a part of our world. 
And there's something inside of every person in this room that recoils at the thought of death. There's something in every one of us that does not want to think about death. We do not want to prepare ourselves for when our loved ones are going to die. We do not want to prepare ourselves for our own death. Even though 10 out of 10 people die, death surprises us and bewilders us when it happens. I mean, have you ever caught yourself talking about someone who has died, maybe a high school friend or uh, a coworker or somebody that you were close with, and you find yourself saying, I can't believe they're gone. There's almost like there's something within your spirit that refuses to accept the reality of death in the world. You're, you're unhappy with death's existence in the world. Why? All over the world, humans feel within themselves this longing and this expecting of there's something after death. There's something inside of us which says death cannot, in fact, it should not be the end of our conscious existence. Why do we naturally feel this way? Is this just evolutionary survival instincts that make you not like death? Or is there something more which creates in us a craving for eternal life? The Christian worldview explains why funerals are so uncomfortable to us. Why they're not just a natural part of living and dying like going to the grocery store is. The Christian worldview teaches that death is foreign to us, it feels foreign to us, because it is a foreign force that entered into the world as a consequence for sin against a holy God. We hope for life after death because there is, in fact, a life after death. You were made for eternal life. And sin came into the world and put you under a curse of death. There is, in fact, eternal life to be had, and there is an eternal death as the alternative. Religions all over the world instinctively come to this conclusion, there has to be more than this. So how do we make sure we inherit eternal life and not eternal death? And so the eager young man here is asking the question that every single person in this room should ask. Unless you're just happy Unless you just are are happy to be ignorant and you're comfortable with being surprised on the day of judgment, this has to be a question that you ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And who better to ask than Jesus? I mean, Jesus in the gospel thus far has defied death. Controlled storms, delivered from demons, healed diseases, raised people from the dead. Surely this good teacher is the one to ask about what comes next. So the eager young man runs to Jesus, falls before Jesus with great anticipation. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' initial response is a little perplexing. Verse 18. Jesus says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
Now, Jesus is God. Jesus is good. But this man doesn't know this. The man is declaring Jesus good based off of his own idea of goodness. And so Jesus wants to correct even how the man asks the question and who the man thinks he's talking to. No one is good except God alone. And so from the beginning of the interaction, the man assumes something very wrong, that he knows what is truly good. And this becomes increasingly clear throughout the entire interaction. And this is truth number one that I believe that Jesus is correcting the man about. Truth number one, eternal life is not for people who think they are good enough. The young man assumes that Jesus is good because of what he sees of Jesus. And the young man assumes that eternal life is an inheritance that can be purchased by goodness. The assumption is found even in how he asked Jesus the question. How does he ask Jesus the question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? He's coming to Jesus saying, saying, good teacher, what is the good step in the right direction to have eternal life? He's looking for some kind of act or process or measure of obedience he could achieve to ensure that he is in the right kingdom. He's wanting to know, where can I buy my passport? With a list of moral goodness. And Jesus brings this to the surface all the more with follow-up statements. Look at verse 18. Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. So he's saying, you know God's standard of goodness. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And it's almost as if the man interrupts Jesus here. It almost is like there's more to be said, but, but verse 20, there's, a, there's almost an interruption to the flow of thought. And, and he said to them, the man says, teacher, it's almost like he's like, oh, that's great. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, there's no reason to believe that this man, from the story, there's no reason to believe that he's just an absolute liar and hypocrite. I mean, this guy is not like a serial killer undercover who is standing there before Jesus and saying, oh, but, you know, I've never murdered anyone. In fact, it seems from the text that he may have been a very good person. Jesus doesn't rebuke him as a hypocrite like he does others in the Gospel of Mark. This man likely really does esteem the commandments of God many, in many ways. Perhaps he's a faithful Jew to the instruction of God. Certainly he's not perfect, but he understands himself to be characteristically a good person who follows the moral code that God has given so if this is the answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, then he interrupts Jesus and says, I've done it. Question answered, eternal life, here I come. Thank you for your time, Jesus. I'm going back to my life now. But already in the story, you should be seeing a difference between this man coming to Jesus 
and how the children came to Jesus in the previous passage, right? They're back to back for a reason. Unlike the child who brought nothing to the relationship with Jesus, this man claims to bring a lot to the table. As we'll see in the following verses, this man says he brings a lot to the table, but ultimately, by the end of the story, he walks away from eternal life. Verse 21 takes a shocking turn in the conversation. Verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. This is almost one of those moments in the Bible, if you're from the south, you know what like bless your heart means, you know? Bless your heart is kind of like, I love you, but you're pitiful. That's what I imagine. That's how I, ima- that's how I read this. Maybe that's wrong, I don't know, maybe that's cultural conditioning. Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus looks at the man, Jesus loves the man, and Jesus invites the man to the true path of eternal life, the true way of transferring your citizenship to the kingdom of God. And he invites the man to sell everything that he's got, give it away, and follow Jesus where he leads. He invites the man to make Jesus his king. Truth number two, eternal life is for people who follow King Jesus. See, Jesus wants to redirect the man's attention altogether, away from eternal life by being good enough, and to an understanding that eternal life is by way of genuine, life-changing faith in the person of Jesus. It's not a moral code. The way to eternal life is not a good enough morality. The way to eternal life is allegiance to Jesus Christ alone. It's, it's faith in a person, not, not ability to carry out a process. Jesus asks the man to trust him. And Jesus asks the man to trust him by selling his possessions and joining the disciples who are literally following Jesus from town to town. Jesus essentially asks the man to pledge soul allegiance to him even over his possessions, his way of life, his own plan for his life. If the man wants to enter the kingdom of God, he must make Jesus not just a good teacher whom he appreciates. But the man must make Jesus the only king whom he follows. There's no confusion here. Jesus is not opening up a negotiation with this man. Jesus is asking this man to do what he asks everyone in the world to do. Follow me. Follow Christ as king. It's the way to transfer your citizenship from the self-destructing kingdom of man to the eternal life in the kingdom of God. You take yourself off the throne of your life and you trust a new king. That's what faith is. Saving faith is not belief in the existence of Jesus. 
Saving faith is not intellectual adherence to a man that did some cool stuff 2,000 years ago. Saving faith is the belief in the lordship of Jesus over all things, including my own life. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You have to love this. Jesus knew exactly where to go to expose this man's unbelief. Jesus knew exactly what would prove for this man that no matter how good he may seem, he would refuse to step off the throne of his own life. Jesus does not ask every person he encounters in the gospel to sell everything that they have and give everything they have to the poor. What he's asking this man to do is is specific. Because he knows exactly what sits on the throne of this man's heart. And verse 22 might be one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The man was confronted with a choice. Will he trust Jesus and follow Jesus, or Will his love for his lifestyle be greater than his love and faith for the Jesus that stands before him? According to verse 22, the man makes the wrong decision. Now, he's disheartened. And I wonder, I wonder, as I read this text, I wonder how many people come to church week in and week out and they hear a sermon... And they're sorrowful because of what they're hearing. And they leave sorrowful and they mistake that sorrow over their sin for genuine repentance. Going home sad over the fact that you don't follow Jesus is still not following Jesus. It's just you walking away from Jesus feeling sorry for it. This man is disheartened. And he turns his back on Jesus because ultimately he still believes that his possessions are more valuable than what Jesus is offering. And Jesus lets him walk away. Do you see that? I mean, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't compromise here. When the man walks away, Jesus doesn't do what we want to do. Right? What we would want to do is say, Oh, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't don't turn away. If you don't want to give up that stuff, I mean, there's a way you can kind of halfway follow Jesus if you want. I mean, don't throw it all out. No, 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 no. Maybe not obey him entirely, but kind of partially. Just just say this prayer, join our church, still have eternal life, and, and, and it won't make that big of a difference in your life. You can stay on the throne. Jesus doesn't do that here. I mean, faith, saving faith, is a faith that puts Jesus in the rightful place. 
as Lord over your life. Kingdom people are not perfect people. I am, Lord knows I'm not a perfect person. My wife knows I'm not a perfect person. Kingdom people make mistakes, but kingdom people believe that Jesus' way is the best way. And kingdom people want genuinely to follow the king. We believe that he is the best. That following him is the best course of action for our life. Jesus lets this man walk away sorrowful. And then he turns to his disciples uh, who are watching in bewilderment. I mean, there's just kind of shift in the story now. We're like, Jesus has been talking to this guy and the 12 disciples. And you look over and you can just imagine like mouths open. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and, and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, amazed at his words. But Jesus said to him again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to Jesus, then who can be saved? I mean, notice how shocked they are. I mean, Mark repeats it twice. Verse 24, they're amazed at his words. Verse 26, they're exceedingly astonished. I mean, in their culture, wealth in society uh, was seen as a blessing, even a blessing from God. Wealthy people were the powerful people in the kingdom. They were the highly favored ones. In man's kingdom, wealth means a lot. Wealth in every way was advantageous in the kingdom of man. But Jesus flips the script. He actually teaches that wealth puts people at a disadvantage for entering the kingdom of God. And you're like, what? Why would wealth put someone at a disadvantage for entering into the kingdom of God? Well, the rich young ruler serves as a case study for this. Because he was wealthy, his way of life deceived him into thinking his kingdom was better than God's kingdom. I mean, even though his riches are temporary, even though his riches will ultimately leave him empty, alone, dead, and under the judgment of God, their present value to him allured him to believe that keeping them was better than following Jesus. Jesus said similar in the parable of the seed and the sower in Mark 4, Mark chapter 4, verse 19, he speaks of the, the word of God that is sown amongst the thorns, those who hear the word, in verse 19, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is why Jesus says it was difficult for this man to follow Jesus. His riches and desires for things of the world kept him from believing that Jesus was worth following. He did not feel his own need for a savior because he was living his version of the good life so why give up that life for eternal life as far as jesus is concerned you are in a very spiritually dangerous position if you are healthy wealthy morally pretty good and generally happy 
because the kingdom of man is successfully deceiving you into believing that your kingdom will stand forever. It's successfully deceiving you into believing that you do not need a new king over your life. This is why Jesus went to the poor and the hurting and the outcasts. Because they were feeling the failure of the kingdom of man. And crying out for a new king. This man is face to face with the king. Face to face with the invitation to follow him and have eternal life forever. He hears the invitation and walks away sorrowful. And this is where I want to pause and ask you, what would cause you to reject that invitation and walk away sorrowfully? I mean, some of you have heard me preach for months and even years, and maybe you even feel conviction over your sin. Maybe you even believe that there really is a God and that Jesus really did historically live, do some miracles, die, rise again. But week in and week out, you leave sorrowful, unwilling to trust Jesus with your life entirely. What is deceiving you into believing that you've got something going on in the way that you rule your life? That is better than the king of the universe who loves you infinitely. In this story, it's wealth that keeps him away. And all of this, as the disciples are watching, it's deeply concerning to the disciples, of course. I mean, I mean, if this stand-up, morally good, wealthy guy can't enter the kingdom of God, then who in the world can? I mean, that's the question in verse 26. They're exceedingly astonished and say, then who can be saved? Now, that's a good question. That's a good question. In fact, it's a better question than the question the rich young ruler asked. The rich young ruler asked, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? The disciples ask, who can be saved? (laughs) The, The rich young ruler assumes he's got what it takes. The disciple assumes nobody has what it takes. How can a rich person have their eyes open to the fruitfulness of their riches and the eternal value of following Jesus. And here's Jesus' answer in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Truth number three this morning, the faith required to follow Jesus is a miracle of God. The values of the kingdom of man are swallowing you up every day. You're a fish in water and you don't don't know you're wet. You're surrounded by man's wisdom all day, every day, all the time. The message of the kingdom of man to you all day, every day, from multiple angles is you are good enough. Follow your heart no matter where it leads. Live for your desires no matter what they are. Make as much money as you can and spend it on yourself as much as you can. Live for today. Find happiness wherever you can. Your truth is your truth, and it's good as long as nobody gets hurt. Be king over your kingdom. Write your own rules and it's wrong for anyone to tell you otherwise. And the message of the kingdom of God is different. It says, no, there is a God who's holy and he gave the breath in your lungs and you refuse to praise him with that breath 
and he loved you anyways and sent his son to die on a cross for you that you not have to pay the penalty for your rebellion. He has made a way for your salvation and the things you think make you happy are lying to you. They are destroying you. God loves you and he does want what's best for you and he made a way of salvation and he invites you to follow him now no matter the cost. What is going to make anyone believe that? I mean, the first message is easy. (laughs) The message of the kingdom of man is tantalizing. That's good. You do you as long as it makes you happy. Who's going to believe Mark chapter 8, verse 34, where Jesus looks at the crowd, looks at the disciples and says, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's not an easy message to swallow. Who's going to believe that in their right mind? What person in this room is going to believe that following the words spoken by a resurrected man preserved in a book for 2,000 years is the way to true joy? Well, according to Jesus, with man, nobody in here is going to believe that. With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The message of Christianity has not only survived, it has thrived and spread for 2,000 years across the entire globe, not because it is an easy message, but because it is a true message that God supernaturally uses to open the eyes of rebellious people. Jesus is totally agreeing and affirming that you and your natural self will reject his message. But he also is saying God's a miracle working of God and he will open your eyes to truth and open the ears of the deaf and soften the hearts of the stubborn. God is the one who makes saving faith in Jesus possible. He's the one who helps you to see him as supremely valuable and those other things as not worth it. And maybe you're here this morning, and you're thinking in yourself, I don't believe this, and I don't even know how to believe this. And let me just ask you to come to Christ like a child, saying, I don't even have faith to offer you. And plead with him to do the impossible in your heart. That's the way of salvation. Pleading with God to do the impossible in your heart. Help my unbelief, Lord. Now at this point in the story, uh, Peter speaks up, as Peter usually does in the Gospel of Mark. He speaks up in all this, and, and, and I don't know if he's just wanting some affirmation here to make sure like he's in, right? Uh, but like he, he sort of has an outburst, and he basically says, look, we've done this. Like we, 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 we're, we're saved. <laughs> we're people who gave up everything. We believe that Jesus is worth it. We believe you're worth following. Like, we're in, right? Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And again, I, and this is just my imagination. This isn't from a commentary. I just Im- imagine Jesus being like, yes, Peter. <laughs> you know, you're right. I'm going to keep teaching now. 
Verse 29, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, there's, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or, or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. There's no one who's given up all these things for me. Verse 30, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. Now, now Peter says, we've, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus. And, and then Jesus sort of gently corrects him because Peter didn't just leave everything to follow Jesus. Peter also gained everything in following Jesus. And this is our final truth this morning, truth number four, following Jesus is worth it. Now, Jesus recognizes the very real cost of following him, right? I mean, he mentions people who've lost homes and families and their property for following him. Now, most of, for most of us, faithfulness to King Jesus has not yet cost us our house, for most of us in the room. For some of us, faithfulness to Jesus has affected our relationships, with brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, or even children. And I hope to see, you see that here, Jesus anticipates, and this is hard, I hope you see here that Jesus anticipates that faithfulness to him takes priority even over your relationship with your own children. Again, uh, for most of us, this doesn't sting like it does for believers around the world. I mean, for most of us, we don't feel that loss the same way that believers in Indonesia feel this verse. The same way that Christian brothers and sisters in North Korea and China and Sudan and Pakistan and India and Russia, Ukraine, the way they read this verse and feel the cost on multiple fronts. But Jesus wants to make a point here that yes, it is costly, but it's also wonderful. Verse 29, there's no one who's left house or brother or sister or father or mother or children or land for the sake, for my sake, for the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times that. Now in this time, Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. I love that. It's going to be hard still. And in the age to come eternal life. Now, now the strange thing about this passage is the phrase, in this time. You, you kind of expect Jesus to say, it's all going to be worth it in the end, right? I mean, you kind of expect that. Like eternal life, heaven, the Lord forever, new creation, no sorrow, no suffering. Like future worth. Yes, following Jesus is worth it one day. But he says there's a sense in which it's worth it right now. <coughs> what in the world, this, 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 what is this sense in which I, <coughs> when I decided to follow Jesus as the Lord of my life, in what sense did I gain houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, and lands in this life? Well, I think in one sense, this passage is to be interpreted with what you gain as becoming a Christian in the local church and the family that you're invited into in a way that no other society of people can. If St. Rose were to come under persecution tomorrow and my house 
were to be burned down before my neighbor Joe took out whoever it was. (laughs) If my house were to be burned down because I'm a pastor, I would not be a homeless man. I wouldn't. If, if, if because I was a pastor, because I was a Christian, if every cent of my bank account were taken out from me by the government because of my faith in Jesus, I would not become a poor man. I have brothers and sisters in St. Rose who would immediately take me into their home. In fact, I was just thinking through in my life, I would have a warm bed and a hot meal in the home of Christians. I know personally in California, Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, Georgia, Maryland, Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, Peru, Egypt, Scotland, Indonesia, Timor-Leste. I have people that I am, I have, I have more in common with the Christian person on the island of East Timor than I have with any unbeliever in the United States, any cousin of mine who doesn't know Jesus. I personally moved to St. Rose only because I was trying to be faithful to how I thought Jesus was leading my family. As much as as beautiful as St. Rose is and all the things it has to offer. (laughs) The motivation (laughs) was that I thought this is what Jesus was leading me to do. And there's a sense in which we did leave mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters in our hometown, which is beautiful and we love very much. And, and we left them. But there's another sense in which we have found mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters here in this church. We found the sweetness of the family of God. So that my son, though he does not get to see his grandfather and his grandmother and his relatives because we've chose to live here, he has more grandfathers and grandmothers and sisters and brothers than he would ever have in a family that did not follow Christ our King. Following Jesus in this life is not just one giant sacrifice. It is worth it in this life and in the next. In following Jesus, there's freedom from sin, hope in suffering, joy unending, purpose in life, meaning in everything, peace in God's plan, security in God's love, and the family in God's church. It's worth it. In this life and especially in the next. The promise we have, the promise we have is that God our Savior will bring us into a new world without pain, persecution, sorrow, or death. And we will join Jesus and our church family in eternity. The perks (laughs) are eternally worth the persecution Trust Jesus at his word. The grass is not greener in the kingdom of man. Let me close with this. Three questions. Let me close with three questions. Number one, according to this story, are you actually a Jesus follower? I mean, according to this story, are you actually a Christian? Have you come to Jesus like a child needing him to save you from your sins and trusted him as Lord, or have you not? I'm not asking if you've been to church before, if you're religious, or if you're pretty good. We just saw someone in the story that was just like that turn and walk the other direction. Cry out to God and ask him to do a miracle in you today and become a Christian and believe. Question number two. According to this story, 
are the people closest to you actually Jesus followers? It does not help our children, our parents, our friends, our spouses, if we go on living in denial about their spiritual state. The rich young ruler here is proof that, that just being good is not enough. Following Jesus is what is needed. And I'm afraid that all of us make excuses for people we love because we want them to have eternal life, but we make excuses that Jesus doesn't make. And when we make compromises in our mind for them that Jesus doesn't make, we comfort ourselves with their intellectual assent to their being a God, and we fool ourselves to make ourselves feel better so that we don't actually try to lead them to Jesus. And it's a cruel thing to do to ourselves and to someone else to pretend that Jesus is king in their life. Question number three, last one. What would cause you to walk away from Jesus sorrowfully? What do you cling to so tightly? What do you want to control so badly? What keeps you on the throne of your life? What could Jesus ask of you that you would consider to be too much? Give it to the Lord this morning. Trust him because the man who conquered death says it's worth it. So believe him, and there will one day be a great reversal. The kingdom of man, thought to be most valuable, will be turned on its head when the kingdom of God comes fully and finally. Verse 31, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray together and respond to his word. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would help us to believe and live in light of what we say we believe. We pray this in Jesus' name.